Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado, and we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, we have news from the ACSI. That's the Association of Christian Schools International. They're growing and changing, but not all of those changes are for the better. I'll explain later in the program. We also have the latest news from Asbury University, where a revival started there is now sweeping the country. We'll take a look at the John Ankerberg Show as well. The popular apologetics teacher is under fire for his use of private jets and lavish travel. We begin today with the latest from the United Methodist Church. Bishop Scott Jones isn't the first United Methodist bishop to join the new conservative Global Methodist Church since the theologically conservative denomination was launched in May, but his exit from the United Methodist Church has possibly caused the biggest stir so far. That's partially because of the unique position his family holds in Methodism and the so-called extreme center position he had staked out within the United Methodist Church. The Jones family is truly one of the first families of Methodism here in the United States. Jones' late father, S. Jameson Jones Jr., was the president of Iliff School of Theology in Denver, and then became the dean of Duke's Divinity School. They're both United Methodist colleges. His brother, L. Gregory Jones, is now the president of Belmont University, previously served as the dean of Duke Divinity School. And again, Duke is one of the most exclusive Methodist seminaries in the country. And one of his three children, Arthur Jones, is senior pastor of a United Methodist Church, St. Andrew United Methodist Church in Plano, Texas, which is currently negotiating to leave the UMC. Yeah, that's right. And the United, the St. Andrew's United Methodist Church is also one of the largest churches in the state of Texas as well. Now, this story gets even more dramatic when you consider that Jones is leaving the United Methodist Church to become the head of the Texas Conference of the Global Methodist Church. That, again, is the conservative group that split off from the UMC, and the Texas Conference is likely going to be one of the largest conferences in the country. Orrin, you mentioned that Jones had identified himself as a part of what you called the extreme center. You don't think of being in the center as being extreme. So what does he mean by that expression? Well, Jones coined that phrase a couple of decades ago, actually. Uh, He said he picked it up from the magazine The Economist. He believes that the current liberal and conservative political language has stopped being helpful when it comes to describing biblical or theological positions. For example, Jones opposes abortion and same-sex marriage. Those are politically 
conservative positions. Liberals would call those positions even extreme. But Jones says they're not extreme at all. They're in the very center of the biblical witness. On the other hand, he also believes in some social activities that might be considered liberal, such as care for the poor and immigrants and the role that the government should play in these activities and in establishing moral norms. So not a libertarian, not a populist even. Again, in the current political environment, these might be considered liberal positions, but once again, Jones asserts that they are in the center, not on the edges of the biblical witness. And that's where he gets the phrase extreme center. He wrote a book by uh, that name in 2002, and he contrasts that with what he calls the dead center, which he says is often marked by appeasement or moral compromise. So Jones has been one of the intellectual thought leaders of the church. That's right, and that's why his departure is so significant. I I should also note that as recently as a few years ago, Jones said that he didn't want to leave, that he was hoping that the denomination would not split. But more recently, he said this, Now, years later, I've realized that my hope and my dream turned out not to be possible because the church has, in fact, split. But it is my desire to try to do whatever I can to hold it together and point the way forward. It just didn't work. And now that it has split, he has had to make a choice. Yeah, he sure has. And he says that the doctrinal and moral disobedience of the United Methodist Church was such that he could not remain in the denomination that his own family had helped to build. Our next story involves ACSI, the Association of Christian Schools International. Yeah, ACSI has about 5.5 million students affiliated uh, in member schools in about 100 countries. Now they have petitioned the IRS to qualify as an association of churches. And that means that ACSI will no longer be required to release its Form 990 to the public. And that means that both the public and its member schools will no longer be able to see vital information about ACSI, such as where the money is being spent. And that's important because ACSI has grown significantly in recent years. Yeah, it sure has. Uh, Its income rose by $5 million just in 2022 alone, now has about $35.3 million in annual revenue, and its assets have quadrupled from $11 million to $44 million. Its member schools in the United States recorded about a 35% higher enrollment than at the start of the pandemic, uh, reversing enrollment in Christian schools in previous years. Why has ACSI made this move? Well, ACSI said that its new tax status was based on the advice of external public accountants. Uh, they, They said that it better represents the association's operations. And finally, that it provides greater protection for the ministry given its faith based foundation, the old religious liberty argument. But it did decline to explain how any operational benefits would come as a result of this new change in status. Warren, let's look at one more story before we take a break. It's the story of the Asbury Revival, which we've been covering for weeks now. What's new? 
After more than two weeks and worldwide headlines, revival services at Asbury University in Kentucky have finally come to an end. But the revival goes on off campus. It sure does. On February 26th, that was last Sunday, uh, the Minneapolis-based evangelist Nick Hall brought an Asbury-inspired revival to nearby Rupp Arena in Lexington, Kentucky, the home of the University of Kentucky, which is about a half hour from uh, Wilmore, Kentucky, which is where Asbury is. After the Asbury revival started spontaneously on February the 8th, university officials have let it go for weeks, but finally said that they had to end services on the 23rd, which was the National Collegiate Day of Prayer. During that final services, people prayed over college campuses, asking God to bring revival to the world. Similar prayer services have been held at other colleges, including Samford University in Alabama, Lee University in Tennessee, and Baylor University in Texas. Asbury President Kevin Brown uh, said that the outpouring services would move off campus, though. Uh, He said that they just needed to get back to the core mission, which was educating students. Now, Robert Coleman, who was a professor of evangelism at Asbury University for 27 years, spoke at the Rupp Arena event um, about what Christians can do next after such a revival. Now, Robert Coleman, I should mention, is now... Now 94 years old. He was at Asbury uh, in 1950 when a revival broke out at the school then, and also when a more famous revival started in 1970 at Asbury. And his message to the crowd at Rupp Arena was simple, just follow Jesus. That's good advice. Well, it is, though, of course, it is not always easy, especially in the current cultural moment. Now, by the way, I, I discussed the Asbury Revival on this week's extra episode of the podcast with uh, film and TV producer and theologian and author Phil Cook. I think we had a lively and helpful conversation about the Asbury Revival, and you can find that conversation in the podcast feed right now. Warren, we need to take a break. When we return, we'll take a look at the popular John Ankerberg show. The show's popular host is being scrutinized for his use of private jets and lavish travel. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll have that story and much more after this short break. Hello everyone, I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Well, next up, the story we promised before the break, the story of John Ankerberg's use of private jets for his ministry. 
Ankerberg Theological Research Institute is one of the largest apologetics ministries in the nation. In 2021, it had revenue of more than $9 million, most of it in donations to its popular television program, The John Ankerberg Show, which is seen on the Daystar Christian Television Network. Like all tax-exempt organizations, the institute is required to disclose if it uses charter aircraft for executives and companions on the Schedule J of its Form 990. On its Form 990 for the calendar year 2021, it did not check the box that would have indicated that it used charter aircraft. Andrew Yeager was the director of donor relations for the Ankerberg Institute from September of 2019 to November of 2022, just a few months ago. Yeager said that between March and November of 2021, Ankerberg's organization used the charter service NetJets to make at least nine flights for ministry and personal purposes. Yeager said that he was on at least a half a dozen of those trips himself. Himself, so he knows they happened. Jaeger disclosed this information in a whistleblower complaint shared with the Institute in September of 2022 and subsequently shared with Ministry Watch. Jaeger estimated in the complaint that over an 18-month period beginning in late 2020, the cost of uh, these flights approached $1 million. This is a substantive and material expense that should be disclosed to major donors. By the way, that was a quote from Jaeger's whistleblower complaint. James Catanzaro, the attorney for the Institute, called Jaeger's $1 million estimate of the amount of money spent on air travel patently false, but he did not say how much the ministry spent, and he did not deny that the ministry used the aircraft. In fact, Darlene Ankerberg, who is John Ankerberg's wife and the CEO and controller of the organization, did acknowledge that the ministry, in fact, does use charter aircraft in some cases. She wrote in an email to Ministry Watch, It is used because of the many challenges in reaching ministry destinations with commercial travel options. Most importantly, we have a board policy that governs and approves the use of the airplane. All ministry travel overseas is done commercially. According to the Institute's Form 990, the board consists of eight people. It does, but three of the board members are members of the Ankerberg family. John Ankerberg himself, his wife Darlene, and their daughter Michelle. Uh, Ministry Watch also asked for a copy of the board policy that governs and approves the use of the airplane, the policy that Darlene Ankerberg referred to, but the Institute has so far not provided us with a copy. Jaeger says that the relationship with NetJets began in late 2020, and Jaeger has also requested that the ECFA, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, conduct a review of uh, Ankerberg's organization to see if they're in compliance with ECFA standards. Jake Lapp is the vice president of member accountability for the ECFA, and he confirmed to Ministry Watch via email that, in fact, there is a compliance review in process. 
Our next story is about a Louisiana pastor, Charles Southall III, who in October 2022 pleaded guilty to money laundering and obtaining nearly $900,000 through fraud. He has been sentenced to five years in prison. Southall will also be required to pay back the money, again, nearly $900,000, and has also been ordered to pay $10,000 to one victim involved in the case within 10 days. Uh, uh, Following his prison term, Southall will also receive supervised release for a period of three years. The sentencing judge reportedly said, we expect more from the people who represent God on earth, adding that while he is not the Lord, Southall will have to face him later. Three victims gave impact statements during sentencing, one of which told the court that Southall financially raped the church. Victims also called Southall a liar and a thief and said that any good he has done is now poisoned. The pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church for more than 30 years, Southall apparently continued in his ministerial duties even after pleading guilty in the case, appearing in the pulpit as recently as last Sunday and holding a live stream Bible study on Tuesday evening, the same day news of his sentencing broke. The result of an FBI investigation, Southall's charge centered on several instances in which he allegedly used his position as a pastor to divert donations and other funds to personal use. The fact that he's also a real estate investor enabled him to move funds without causing a lot of suspicion. Southall allegedly coerced $10,000 out of one congregate and then diverted the funds for personal use. He stole more than $100,000 in donations from another congregant given over the course of about four years meant for charity work and capital improvements to the church's facility. And he stole over $200,000 from the budget of a Christian charter school where he was the board president. He had also planned to open a campus in Baton Rouge nearby. Uh, That plan, though, never came to pass. And we have one more story about financial fraud. Yeah, last week in Alabama, a district judge sentenced a church secretary to five years in prison for wire fraud after she embezzled over $200,000 from the church where she worked. Court documents say Sharon Collins worked at the First Baptist Church in Foley, Alabama uh, from May of 2007 until July of 2019. She initially served as a church secretary and later worked as the financial secretary for the church and a related school. As the church financial secretary, Collins embezzled the church funds by using church-issued credit cards. Yeah, in addition to her five-year prison sentence, U.S. District Judge Terry Moorer uh, ordered Collins to serve a three-year probation term after her release. For the supervisory period, she'll be subject to credit restrictions. And of course, Collins will also have to pay the amount, pay back the amount that she stole, $209,000 in restitution and about $1,200 in special assessments. Now, Natasha, before we move on, I just wanted to say that one of the reasons that I wanted to have these two stories about financial fraud uh, in the podcast today is because uh, there are things that churches can do uh, to make sure that financial fraud doesn't take place in their church. And I'm going to be writing about this more in my editor's notebook column, which we will post on Saturday. I'd like to encourage everyone who has any sort of a leadership or a financial role in a church to check out that column. 
Orrin, let's look at one more story before our next break. Yeah, it's an update on the King's College, a Christian college in New York City that we've been reporting on in the past. It announced in an email to parents on February 6 that it was experiencing a funding shortfall of approximately $2.6 million for the spring semester. The deadline to raise the $2.6 million was February 15th. According to Inside Higher Education, though, the college raised less than $200,000, less than 10% of what it needed by that deadline. Inside Higher Ed also uh, pointed uh, out that in a virtual prayer meeting on February 3rd, Interim President Stockwell Day, who, by the way, is also a former Canadian Minister of Finance, noted that the college wasn't close to hitting its $2.6 million mark, but downplayed the possibility of a closure. He said that they had a plan to finish the semester and do graduation in May as scheduled. After that, though, it's not clear what will happen. Warren, we're going to take another break, but when we return, our lightning round of Ministry News of the Week. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. everyone, I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. We like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What do you have first? Well, we have a profile of an organization called Faith Comes by Hearing on the website this week. Faith Comes by Hearing produces audio Bibles for unreached people groups. And over the past five years, it has grown dramatically. It now has revenue of more than $20 million a year and assets that top $60 million. We take a look at why the organization has accumulated all that money and what it plans to do with it. And I'll have a link to that story in today's show notes. What else is on the site this week? Well, we have what in the journalism business is called an explainer on why Saddleback Church, one of the best-known Southern Baptist churches in the nation, was recently kicked out of the denomination. I thought it was because it ordained a woman as a pastor. Well, it was, but the issue is more complicated than that. Uh, Other Southern Baptist churches 
have ordained women in the past and been allowed to stay in the denomination. But because Saddleback is such a large and high-profile church, the denomination was forced to act. And one of the byproducts of kicking out Saddleback was that the SBC also had to disfellowship other churches with women pastors who had been serving there quietly for years. That fact has caused some Southern Baptists to wonder just how seriously the church takes its ban on women pastors. There's also another important Southern Baptist principle at stake, and that is the autonomy of the local church. Southern Baptists have always maintained that ordination was a local church issue. This decision is calling some to question the SBC's commitment to that distinctive. We unpack these issues and a whole lot more uh, in the article this week on our website. Well, it's a new month, and this is the first podcast episode for the month of March, and we've also got some new lists. That's right. Our monthly list is a list of the 60 or so ministries out of the Ministry Watch 1000 that scored 100% in our donor confidence score. You know, a lot of times here at Ministry Watch, we focus on ministries that are Messing up, not doing great. Well, this is a list of 60 ministries who couldn't be doing better. They got 100% scores in the in our donor confidence score. Uh, it's tough to beat that. You can find that list on the front page of our website. We also have our list of the top 10 stories of the month. And you can probably guess what some of those stories were. The Asbury Revival came out near the top, of course, as did the story of Saddleback getting disfellowshipped by the SBC, the story that we just talked about. But the surprise was that a story I wrote for the website more than two years ago was last week's number one story, and by a wide margin. It's a story I wrote about a little-known Christian leader named Lonnie Frisbee. At least he was not well-known when you wrote the story. That's exactly right. But last week, the new movie Jesus Revolution hit theaters, and Lonnie Frisbee is a major character in that story. And I guess that's why my two-year-old piece on Frisbee um, showed up so highly on our list this week. In any event, you can read that story and get caught up on all the top stories for the month of February by going to the Ministry Watch website, which is, of course, just ministrywatch.com. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? Yeah, a couple. Um, These podcast episodes that Natasha, you and I do, are usually quick summaries of the stories that we have on the website during the preceding week. But we've got a story up this week that kind of defies an easy summary. It's the story of Liberty HealthShare, a Christian healthcare sharing service that is being investigated for an alleged failure to make the healthcare payments that it promised to its members. I want to add quickly that there are a lot of great Christian healthcare sharing organizations out there, and this story is just about one of them. So please don't think we're indicting the entire industry. We are not. In fact, I personally have used Samaritan Ministries myself in the past, and I found it to be a really exceptional experience. But if you are a part of a healthcare expense-sharing ministry, or if you are considering one, you should really read this article. It goes into great detail about not only Liberty HealthShare, but about the industry in general. It's on the front page of our website. 
Anything else? Just one more item. I want our listeners to know that if they give to Ministry Watch during the month of March, they'll receive a copy of my book, Faith-Based Fraud, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of Our Time. If you're a regular listener to the program or reader of our website, you know that we've offered this book in the past but it's been more than a year since the last time we did offer it, and we've had literally tens of thousands of new people on our email list since then, and we're making it available for folks who might not have had that opportunity. It's our thank you for a donation of any size during the month of March. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Ryan Gabrielson, J. David McSwain, Jessica Alteralde, Dale Chamberlain, Kim Roberts, Phil Cook, Fiona Morgan, Bob Smetanya, Steve Raby, Emily McFarlane Miller, Christina Darnell, Rod Pitzer, and you, Warren. And special thanks to churchleaders.com and ProPublica for contributing materials for this week's podcast. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.